to I don't I don't want to have to call your girlfriend and tell her to bring this, the the sedation gun home. Well, I just spent, <laughs> I just spent the last week getting the right microphone to work, so hopefully I sound better now. Yeah, you do. Okay, well that's good. Bringing Art and Technology Together podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of science, technology, and art, and all sorts of other fun stuff around those realms. I'm your co-host for today. My name is Ryan Price, and with me as always is Catherine Neal. And if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, you can learn a little bit more about us in episode number one. And episode number two, we had a really great interview with Hillary Mason. So if this is your first time listening, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to some of the past episodes. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Hello. And I want to say today we're going to be talking about projects that Catherine and I are working on and Hopefully we'll get to some other guest spots in the future. But right now we have some some personal news, personal stuff we've been working on, personal growth, new areas we've been entering. And one of the things you've been doing, Catherine, is online poetry. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I have become one of the contributing writers for an online site called Tweet Speak Poetry. It's about poetry, it's also about prose, and it's a really, really great site. I'd encourage everybody to check it out. If you're interested in learning how to write or are just interested in reading other people's works, it is a really wonderful site. Cool. So how, how did you get involved with them in the first place? It was sort of an interesting coincidence. What happened was I had been following them on Facebook And then one day they posted an article from the Harvard Business Review about how poets make better business leaders. And the moment they posted it and I read the article, I got back online and and posted, yes, 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 finally I feel vindicated because uh, besides being a poet, I've been a consultant with very large tech consulting firms in the United States and I'm a systems engineer and a data scientist and that sort of thing. So I've never had any problem with those things all existing inside my head, but other people seem to think it's weird. (laughs) So the editor wrote me back and said, really, tell me more about this. And she and I started talking and then she asked for my work. And that's how I sort of ended up becoming a contributing writer. Great. And so we'll definitely have a link in our in our show page to TweetSpeak and your your profile there and that article from the Harvard Business Review. Yeah. Yeah, all that and, stuff should be there. You can go to battideas.com and you can check this episode and our, our past ones, the notes that we left there. So you've got, got some poems there. Now they've made you a contributing writer. And then you were just telling me um, one more new piece of news, right? <laughs> Oh, yes. I have been asked to put together and teach this summer an online series of workshops on creativity. Originally, I was asked if I was interested in teaching uh, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, but we couldn't really break that up into four-week chunks. 
It doesn't really lend itself to that. So the editor and I started talking about it, and I made some suggestions, and then she said, why don't you just put something together you think would work? And so I did, and she really, really likes it, and so it will probably be rolling out this summer. I'm not exactly sure what dates it's going to be. That's awesome news, Catherine. And like we said before, if you're interested in some of that stuff, I'm sure we'll have links in our in our show notes so you can go and check it out. Absolutely. Swinging to the beat of music soft and sweet, I met a dusky maiden one day. With her naughty glance and charming hula dance, she made me want to linger and play. Naughty hula eyes that slyly hypnotize That cast a spell right from the start Deep within them lies a smile that never dies To thrill and still my heart So Ryan, what have you been up to? I'm making a play. It's It's my new thing that I've always been into but I never actually have worked on before. I don't maybe is there a word for that like a latent hobby or something like that <laughs> we should coin something right now and then and then we'll be the known as the ones who did it I like that hmm let's think about a latent this. profession I, I think know. that's called an amateur before they become a professional <laughs> well, I, I mean I feel like this is something that I always had skills in but I never exercised it in a way that was commercial before Okay, I guess that's amateur. Damn it! Oh well, we could go with bucalier. Bucalier. That's what is what the? Okay, please define. Okay, a bucalier. It's a French word, and a bucalier is someone who's sort of like a jack of all trades, but they're a little bit higher than an amateur. So you know, a bucalier would be like uh, a really high-end handyman. Interesting. Yeah, but I think it sounds much, much more pro than so, handyman. So at this point, I am a theatrical bucalier. That sounds there great. There you go. That's, I like it. I'm, I'm into it. Let's let's continue. <laughs> um, the thing that I like about this particular play is kind of like how it got started and hopefully how it will continue. A couple of years ago, I saw an improvised comedy show that was called Murder We Wrote by a guy here at a local private school called Rollins College. David Charles, somebody I'd love to get on the show for the future. So if we have a spot where we're keeping notes about that, David Charles is on my list. He created the show where they had eight actors on stage and none of them played the same part from one night to the next. All of their roles and their names and their relationships were pretty much set. So this person was this person's child. This person was this person's parent. This was this person's spouse their cousin, their uncle, whatever it happened to be, stuff like that. But any part could be played by a man or a woman. They chose androgynous names. And then they drew cards like you would in the game of Clue, where they would say, you know, this was the lead pipe in the study by Colonel Mustard. But in their case, it was one of their main characters. So they randomized the characters. They randomized the murder weapon and the location and the murderer. And then everybody went on and put on their outfits and they started the show, it was a party, and there was some sort of a natural disaster. So they decided on, was it be a hurricane? Was it going to be a forest fire? Was it going to be a tornado? Was it going to be aliens attacking? What was the natural disaster that was going to force everyone to stay in the house 
until the murder happened and then the police come and they try to solve the murder and at the halfway point right after the murder happens everyone gets to go out and write down their theory about what weapon what room and what person and if anybody got it right there was a prize and then the person that died would come back after the intermission and they would become the policeman and it was really great they had lots of these little theatrical tricks about how to tell the story and all this kind of stuff it was so inspiring to me like i thought this was such an innovative idea i went back and i watched it three times it was one of my favorite pieces of theater maybe ever and i have seen at this point in the last 10 years hundreds and hundreds of theater shows easily so i kind of like store that in my head and i said i don't know how it ever get there but this is one of those things that maybe someday i would love to be a participant in a show like this but i'm not really an actor so we have this uh theater festival here in orlando the orlando fringe festival and it is if if you know what a bar camp is it is the bar camp of theater festivals the idea is that anyone is allowed to put on a show and the only way they really um adjudicate anything is by randomness they they put everyone who wants to do a show in 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 their case they have color coded all the theaters so there's nine theaters everyone who wants to do a show in the pink venue they put all their names in the hat and they say okay the first name in the pink venue and mine was the very first local company drawn from all of orlando it was invisible frisbee productions does the 39 steps and i was it was really cool, cool to be drawn number one for local companies so i really could have been in any venue i wanted because so there's some competition for these like one venue the yellow venue gets like 16 people wanted to be in there but they can only hold eight you know so it's there's there's this whole other culture to it and i could go on and on and on about it all day so what we're doing is we're taking a story from a, a a classic novel it's in the public domain called the 39 steps it's been turned into a film by alfred hitchcock it's been turned into a play recently on broadway it's been turned into several different movies tv shows and radio plays but every time someone has adapted it they change a few things about it so i said well, what if we did the same kind of thing but we change a few things every night and so that was kind of the concept we started with i talked to my good friend becky who is a longtime actor she does a lot of stuff with like um interactive like almost like training kind of stuff but she's also done live performances a lot in schools where you kind of have to think on your feet a lot so she's got a lot of improvised improvising skills even though she doesn't really do a lot of whose line is it anyway style improv and then we also went through an audition process and we got four actors who are coming from different different backgrounds um also but a lot of them do have a lot more traditional like on stage improvising acting experience and uh we're putting on a show in a couple of weeks very cool that I don't sounds even know like what to say fun. it's it's <laughs> it's really exciting and it's really scary and it's it is a different kind of work than i do in my day job where i'm building websites for people and i'm like suggesting things to them that i'm pretty sure they're going to say no to or say that's too hard or we don't know how to do that versus in in a performance realm the only thing you can really do is give people stuff and expect them to sit there and, and be polite and pay attention until the end so it's the the means of delivering it is completely different and therefore the kind of preparation you have to do is so completely different and then the fact that we're doing an improv show means that we're not going completely in the in the you know, passive way of in, of 
of consuming it. So there's stuff that we have to plan for and account for, and it's well, going to be interesting. Well, and you and I were talking about this earlier, that really part of the excitement of both of our projects is the fact that we don't really know how any of this is going to turn out. And really that's sort of where all the creativity and the fun and the fear comes from is because with any creative, really creative project or undertaking is you don't really know what's going to happen next. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you keep painting pictures of the beach at a certain point, you just become that guy that paints pictures of the beach and you can kind of guess who's going to be into your, into your production and who's not. Right. But I, while I have a decent idea because I have a lot of history with this particular festival, Hopefully we'll get to perform this outside of this festival too, and then we'll have to go through the whole plan of acquiring an audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's sort of what keeps it all very fresh, no matter what your project is, is being a little scared and not knowing and being outside your comfort zone. Because if we wanted to just stay in our comfort zone, then you would just be building websites and I would just be crunching data, and that's how our lives would be. Yeah, definitely. But we're not built like that. There's tropic skies, I found a paradise, and round my heart they wove a lay. How I idolize, oh naughty hula eyes, that stole my heart away. Naughty hula eyes, that silently hypnotize, they cast a spell right from the stars. Something else cool that I know we both did this week is we went over to the the Famalab, which is our local hacker space. They had their open house. They have a monthly open house, which a, a local artist named Nathan Selikoff decided he wanted to start a, a user group for the processing programming language and sort of extend the reach of that community down here. And processing is really interesting. I'd actually, I'd love to hear your description of processing because I, I have my own way of kind of getting um, to it. But. Well, I mean, processing is a programming language where you, from, from my understanding, which is fairly limited, it uses sort of mathematical algorithms to produce what I would consider artistically pleasing images. That would be my best description of it. That's interesting. It combined like what it practically is with what most people use it for. Yeah, yeah. So what's your definition? Well, I like to start with the reason why they created it. it okay. So Ben Fry and Casey Reyes, if I'm getting their first and last names right. I have it on a book here somewhere, I'm sure. But <laughs> these two guys, they were students at MIT. And one of them was more of an artist and one of them was more of a programmer. But they decided that they wanted to have a, w uh, a way for artists to more easily express themselves on a computer. I mean, right. you know, from the moment someone invented a computer, someone started making art with it because that's just what happens. A new medium appears and artists want to play with it. But at some point, using computers got more complicated Using computers to create literally anything got more complicated, right? I mean, everybody knows right. Photoshop and video editing and After Effects and whatever, but the idea of creating truly unique things with a computer has now gone into this realm of programmers. And a lot of people 
you know, when they start talking to me at my day job about about stuff they can do with computers, it's all based on something somebody else is already working on. Very few people say this is completely original. Or if they do say that, then they normally don't have the budget or the like mental overhead to really take that project to the end. So the idea with processing is to take as much of the friction as possible out of this process of making something new and specifically something visual. So they they picked an arena. I think there's lots of inspiration from other things that draw graphics inside of processing, but ultimately it is its own distinct language. And it was designed so that you could use it in as many places as possible. So it used Java. And at the time when they made it, which is maybe about 10, 12 years ago, Flash sort of existed, but it wasn't really installed everywhere. And then Java existed, and that meant you could run a Java applet on anybody's web browser. It was sort of this universal plugin that everybody kind of had Java. And they Java people are always talking about, well, Java can run on this. And you know these days, Java runs on Android. Every Android phone is a Java phone also. So there was that interesting thing of that, like sort of that write once, run everywhere sort of mentality. And actually now someone's ported it to the web browser's native programming language, which is JavaScript, right. which means that just about anything you want to do with the core processing library, you can do in a web browser. One of their big advantages of processing is that because it's open source and because it's, it's community-driven, people create lots and lots of these libraries that you can link in other stuff. So like I, I made a project with processing where I used uh, a Nintendo Wiimote from the Wii, the little wand. And that actually just has a Bluetooth radio in it. So you can hook it up to any computer, but then you need to have a special program that you can use for, so that the Wiimote can control your computer. In this case, I don't want the Wiimote to control the computer. I want the Wiimote to interact with my processing sketch. That was one of the cool things they did with processing is they chose they chose certain paradigms and certain ways of working with it. So they don't call it a program. They call it a sketch because it's the idea that you might take this sketch and save this now because this does something kind of pleasing, but then you might take that sketch and augment it in a way and now you've made a you know a completely separate project and you can kind of because you're starting from a, a digital paradigm you can kind of make like this infinite number of permutations of all these different sketches that all kind of start from the same idea i might be losing everyone right now no i mean basically what you're talking about is like any artist would make multiple sketches of something like leonardo would make three sketches of everything he did from different points of view. So you could just do the same thing with process. And then you can decide, you know, is it the compilation that I want to use or is it just one of the sketches? It's like like any artist who has a sketchbook. They have multiple versions of what they think they're going to do and then they just pick the best one. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so the fact that it is a computer program makes it easy. And then, you know, we were talking about Java and web browsers, especially in early processing, the only way to share your work was to to publish it as an applet, which is basically a plugin that you could upload to the web. But unless you actually tried to turn this feature off, every time you would do one of those uploads, it would also upload the source code so that other people could see how you generated this this picture. 
so you were also sending your source code along and the the web is a really great tool for that any anything any web page you view you can pretty much deconstruct it really easily because it's all the you know all the source code at least of the display part of what you're looking at is right there So without the community, it really isn't what it is. And those are the kinds of things that anytime I find something like that, I, I'm, I'm gravitated towards it. So the Orlando Fringe Festival is like this. Bar camps are like this. Um, co-working spaces are like this. Processing. Just about anything open source is very likely like this. I mean, there are definitely some open source projects in the world where it's the company that's behind it. And kind of if you don't belong to their company, then okay, yeah, you can send us some source code, but we're kind of like in we're the the keepers of the kingdom over here. Right. But the ones that are really a community, they sort of transcend the regular software paradigm and they become something else. Well, they're the ones that really are the source of the creativity and the innovation with it. Which is it's in it's interesting. Because we've got now, there's all these people on GitHub. And uh, GitHub, if I can describe it in 10 words or less, it is a place for people to collaborate on software projects. And they do a couple of things that are kind of novel. One is that any project you contribute to, if the project itself is publicly available, I can look at not only that you're interested in this project, not only that you've contributed to this project, but I can drill down really, really closely. And I can look at, just like if you were going to look at the poetry website that we are talking about, I can look at all of your individual contributions and I can, I can sort of see where it is exactly that you are working on something. And so a lot of people now, they don't even build a resume or a list of clients, they just say, here's my GitHub profile. This says everything about me that you would possibly need to know. Right. GitHub also has the ability to host your private projects there. And it's interesting because you can use this one tool for your sort of paying work and your community work. And it ends up creating this mass of people that all use it for just about everything, all day, all the time. If if what you do is write code, but people are now starting to put other things onto GitHub, like handbooks and manuals and documentation, and I would I would say probably I know that there are people that have used GitHub for books also and other kinds of creative projects. Yeah, it's really an amazing
GitHub, the product itself is a closed product. Like I can't add a new feature to GitHub, but they have an API, right? And so everybody knows from the early days of Twitter, the fact that Twitter had an API meant you could have all these interesting clients and interesting data visualizations and a lot of other services can tie into Twitter. So we've got all like for a little while, there were like 50 different Twitter picture applications, but now Instagram is probably the biggest one that's not owned by Twitter. And anytime I post something to Instagram, I can instantly push it to Twitter. The reason why that works is because they have an API. And think about any any website that you have where this one has a password and this one has a password. But you can also use your Twitter password to sign in. That That is also an API. It's normally called OAuth, which is open authentication. It, it means that I can use my Google credentials to log into GitHub, for example. So now people are starting to use GitHub as one of those, a hub, for other kinds of services. People host their blog, and in order to make a new post on their blog, they upload a new file to GitHub, or they make a new new, um, version of of their repository that is their blog's repository. And that then, through a series of hooks that fires off after every commit, will make their website and go and regenerate it. So there's all these... Having an API like that and a community like that creates an ecosystem. I'm so glad you used that word. <laughs> ecosystem. Uh, it, it, gets, it gets overused in certain arenas, but that, to me, is the right word for it. It's like this this actor is over here, and it's providing this whatever it is. It It has things that it takes in and things that it spits out. And then another you know, member of the community can be taking things in and spitting things out. And without all of those things sort of working in concert, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same effect as if GitHub were trying to make all these services on their own, right? This is something that like, let's take a Microsoft as an example. Microsoft wants you to buy Microsoft software for everything. But GitHub says, buy us for this one thing that you really need, and then we're going to make an API so that you can do whatever you want with anything else. And then that ends up being, maybe you're getting your product from three or four different companies or three or four different groups of people, or maybe one of them you're hosting yourself, and one of them GitHub is hosting for you, and another one you're putting on Amazon, because Amazon has a really good service for that. Yep, which is why we love open source stuff. So, Catherine, I think we said we were going to limit this to 30 minutes, but did you have a a because? I want to hear you. Because? Because why? No, I was just going to say, we love open source because it's because software should be free and people should be able to exchange information and art should be free to a certain degree. You know, artists should get credit for their work and paid for their work and stuff like that. But, you know, there should be there, there should always be an open dialogue. Don't you think? Well, yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of art is open source too, right? You yeah. see next to the, the painting, it says this was made with, you know, oil on canvas or this was made with 
watercolor and Conte crayon. Like exactly. they give you, there's a certain point where they can't tell you how to make this exactly because that's, there is a, there is that creative aspect of it, but a lot of art has that open communication to it. And with, without there being communities of artists sharing their methods with each other, then art would not be progressing very fast. It's true. And the other nice thing is like people can look at the same thing and as artists, they can draw the same objects, but because of individual differences, the objects, what they produce is going to look completely different. And that's where you get into, you know, artistic individuality, which is lovely and wonderful. And we love that very, very much. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm super happy that we did another one of these and that my computer cooperated for the whole 30 minutes. Yes, so Ryan didn't have to throw his machines against walls, which would be very, very upsetting. Not that there are probably very many people listening to this who make their own audio recordings, but beware of upgrading your Mac to the latest operating system. Make sure that whatever way that you get sound into your computer still works before you do the upgrade. I sort of went through that with my uh, iPhone. I upgraded to the latest version of the operating system, and it decided that that meant it could turn the ringer off and not tell me how to turn it back on. And I had to jump through all kinds of hoops trying to figure out why my phone was not ringing and how to get it to ring again, which drove me nuts for several days. Goodness gracious. Yes, I was not happy. Well, Catherine, um, if we want to find out more about you on the internet, how do we do that? Well, there are a few ways. You can, of course, Google me, uh, but there are a few Catherine L. Neils, but I'm the scientist and poet. You can also find me at tweetspeakpoetry.com. Where else can you find me? LinkedIn. I am working on my own website, but I haven't quite gotten there yet. You'll help me with that, won't you, Ryan? Absolutely. <laughs> and and I'm Ryan Price. RyanPriceMedia.com is my sort of homepage. You can find a lot of other places to jump off from there. I don't know what social network is a good one to find me on these days because I've kind of gotten distracted by working on my theater show these days. Um, if you If you are in Orlando in May, the Orlando Fringe Festival is a really awesome place to go, and I will be there every day under the beer tent, handing out flyers, trying to get people to come to my show. And drinking beer. Well, of course. <laughs> if I if I have any free time, I actually volunteer and I pour beers also. It's a it's always a fun fun time at the fringe. Urban Rethink is a place where I, I work quite a bit. Resident creative there, as is Catherine. True. We are sort of in a way I guess we could say that we're committed to the continuing health and reputation of this co-working space yes indeed orlando bar camp is coming up if you are in florida i believe it is may 16th if i'm getting that date right it's a saturday whatever that saturday is um so hopefully we'll release a couple more episodes before that comes out but it's only about a month away so if you are in the southeast and you want to come check it out that's actually during the same week as fringe so you could Go to bar camp in the morning and come see my show at night. An excellent idea. All of those things are great. And please do check out 
batideas.com, B-A-T-T, this, the homepage for our podcast, and maybe some other stuff in the future, like maybe a Bringing Art and Technology Together conference. More news on that when it develops. Yay! And I think that's about it for now. This has been uh, episode three, if I'm counting correctly, of the Bringing Art and Technology Together podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, that was that went much easier than last time. <laughs> and you solved this problem with what the twenty-five dollar gizmoid? Yeah, two hundred something dollar soundboard from Japan. No dice. Right. Twenty-five dollar soundboard sound thingy. It's it's literally it's got a an an RCA jack in and out. And a USB plug. <laughs> Twenty-five bucks from Germany, done. <laughs> right? It's a. I mean, Behringer. Behringer is probably, as far as making electronic audio stuff, probably the biggest company, right? Like, right. They just make so many different little, from all the way from the very lowest end, like this, to the very, 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 very high end that costs many tens of thousands of dollars. Right. They make everything, and. I was told, it doesn't matter what it is, Behringer is going to work on it. And I said, okay. I don't know why I have to spend $25 to make my $200 thing work, but I will do it. So, take-home message. German technology, good. Japanese technology, not so good. Oh, Or just, <laughs> they don't update their drivers as fast. Maybe that's it.